Well, welcome to Spark. We're going to dive right in. We're in the middle of our Genesis series, and tonight's message is entitled, Let's Get Our Hands Dirty. You guys ready? We're going to get our hands a little bit dirty today. It's okay. Don't get scared. It's going to be fine. All right, so we're going to jump right on in. We are going to spend some time looking at the Garden of Eden. Now, in the book of Genesis, beginning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's some real significant descriptions of the Garden of Eden. And the last few weeks, we've been going through mostly chapter 1. We've talked about how things are good. God made them good. He speaks them into existence, says, let them be, brings intentionality to them. And that all of this is that we are made in his image. All of these things, these beautiful things are happening in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, it starts to describe the Garden of Eden. And I think when we think of the Garden of Eden, maybe we think of pictures a little bit like this. I don't know if that's really what it looks like. I'm not sure who even made that picture. But um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But let's continue. What else do you guys think of when you think of the Garden of Eden? Maybe you have a Sunday school flanogram picture in your head, right? The flannel graph. And there's a pink flamingo and the red snake. And they look, you know, American. Um, so, sure, whatever. Uh, from the 50s, perhaps. This one's one of my favorites because she's puritanical. Right, Eve? There's, there's the lion and lamb, they're hanging out, but it's very much like an English garden, right? Um, and, and she's got full clothes on and reading a little Bible, you know, because that was there already by, by Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and really, these pictures tell us a lot more about the people who make them and where they'd like to be. Isn't it true? So here's maybe one other picture. Um, they're frolicking, you know, uh, buck naked over there in the sun and um, some really nice stuff going on there. But if you ask me, I really think the Garden of Eden should look like this, right? How, how many of us have like paradise, Garden of Eden, hammock, maybe somebody very well paid and loves their job to bring you something occasionally, right? And all of those things. So that is what I'm thinking of when we think about Garden of Eden, when we think about paradise, when we think about hanging out with God, it's like, ah, Right? It's just like, yeah, I can't wait till that happens. It's going to be awesome. Well, let's read and see which picture, if any of those, matches closely up with the actual account. So here it is, Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now God's going to get his hands dirty. Because the Lord God then formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Did you know God gets his hands dirty? Just likes to play in the dirt a little bit. Breathe into that human right there. And then the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. So God, his hands are dirty because he's making man, and now he's actually gardening. He's planting there. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I don't have that in my picture of Hawaii with the hammock. I don't have that like Garden of Eden with work and take care of it. 
And then the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock and the birds in the sky and the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, woman, whoa, man, no. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of man. And that is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Naked and unashamed, everybody. That's what's happening. Next line. And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Which brings us to this week's installment of Really, Really with Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden edition. (laughs) Really? Are you serious, God? Really? You create and you create something good, but then you put us to work. Really, God? Really? There's work in the garden? Like, I actually have to work in the garden? And then there's loneliness. God says, it's not good. You're alone. So there's something that's not good that's in the garden. Loneliness is in the garden, and it's not good. So God has to make somebody come out of man's rib. And that's interesting. Isha, Isha is man. Isha is woman. So Isha comes out of Ish. And that's, okay. So that happens there. And really, God, now there's a rule. You're going to actually put a tree here that I can't touch, but a tree that I can touch. So there's rules and responsibilities in the garden. Really, God? Really? Rules. Really? I have to have rules? And then there's freedom and free will because you can choose to not touch or to touch one of those trees. And then really, really, God, there's a snake. Really? Did you really have to put the snake in the garden? Why is the snake in the garden? Isn't this harmony? Isn't it? all paradise. Isn't it everything we've always wanted? Isn't everything exactly perfect? Really, God? Really? This is the Garden of Eden? This is the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden involves God getting his hands dirty, God placing humans into into a role, into a calling, and saying, now you work the ground. The story starts with no shrub was on the earth, no tree was here, because there was no one yet here to work it. And so God says, here's this beautiful garden, and I'm going to put all of this good stuff in it. And one of the things that's really good that I'm going to put in it is free will, is choice, freedom to love me, freedom to serve me, freedom to work, freedom to have purpose. And I'm going to put that right into the garden. So maybe the garden doesn't look so much like this after all. And maybe we should start to readjust a little bit our idea of what that Garden of Eden paradise looks like. It's good, and there's harmony, and there's beauty, and there's wonderful things, but there's a potential and a shift for everything to go wrong and sideways, and it kind of does. And that's our first picture of garden in the Bible. Our first picture of garden in the Bible is a realistic picture. It's a bit of a reality hit. It's kind of awesome because God creates something that's not mystical and magical and where plants just grow whether or not there's rain or whether or not anyone tends to them. God creates something that works. 
but that it requires a partnership between God and all of us in that partnership, and it requires a partnership and intent of our will to participate in the goodness of that creation. So let's take a look at other gardens in the Bible and see if this type of imagery, what we know now about the Garden of Eden, pushes through some of these other stories. Had you guys ever thought about the Garden of Eden that way, or had you mostly thought about it like Hawaii? Or Mexico, or Jamaica, or wherever else. Anyone? Yeah? Okay. So that's just not, unfortunately, the garden of the Bible. So let's push through. The next time we see a garden thing happening is with this guy Noah. I don't know if you remember the Noah story, but God says, build a big boat because people are wicked and awful and I need to wipe them out. Every human heart was only evil all the time. Now, after God makes the floodwaters recede and Noah is now set up into this kind of new order of creation, God has wiped away the wickedness and he's rebirthing the earth and the water recedes, kind of like uh, Peter refers to it as a baptism of the earth. The water recedes, the earth comes up, there's a dove, there's an olive branch, all this beauty. God then says to Noah and his sons, the same thing he said to Adam and Eve in chapter one, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Let's try again. Okay. That other garden thing kind of went a little sideways. People got wicked and crazy. I had to wipe all that out. Let's do this garden thing again. And God says to Noah, whenever I bring over the bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant between you, me and you and all living creatures of every kind. And never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. That's good news. Noah's like, phew, thanks. That was a long time on that boat with all those animals. And I was kind of going to have to, you know, kick off one of my family members pretty quick, right? Long time to get stuck. So Noah's first response then, when he first gets off the boat, he makes an altar and he worships the Lord. And then God makes this covenant with him. Right after that covenant, here's what Noah does. He, Noah, a man of the soil, the text says, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Great. We're back to the garden. Very awesome. Next thing. He drank some of its wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered inside his tent, which brings us to our next edition of really, Noah, really, (laughs) naked and ashamed, right? Naked and ashamed edition. Did you just forget that God had to wipe out the entire face of the earth with all that wickedness? Did you really forget seeing all that death and destruction? Did you really not remember how to keep your clothes on? You don't remember any of this? And all of a sudden, all that happened in that garden of Eden is back again where there's planting and then there's a tree and fruit and the perversion of that good gift of fruit of the vine to get to drunkenness, to get to naked and ashamed really quick. And so that's our next picture of garden. Excellent. Thank you, God. Woohoo. Garden involves the opportunity to get drunk and naked. Okay. So let's move again. The next big picture of garden, I think one of the best pictures in the entire Bible, is actually the land of Israel. God shows up to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and says, I've seen my people who are enslaved by Pharaoh. I've seen what's happening, and I'm going to pull them out of Egypt, and I'm going to take them to a good land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says, and a land where all these people are currently living. Parasites. Hittites, 
the people I don't want to live next to, all those people still living in the land. And God says of this land in Deuteronomy chapter 8, for the Lord God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and, and hills and a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, the land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And so God starts to set up this beautiful picture in Deuteronomy 8 to start to say, guess what? I know you broke that first garden and then you got naked and ashamed in the second garden too. So now we're going to take you into a land that is beautiful and good and has all of those beautiful garden images that we started with. But if you read all of Deuteronomy 8, those blessings of those seven species, those seven varieties, wheat, barley, vine, fig, pomegranate, olive, and date palm for the honey, those seven species, those blessings come with a caveat. When you enter the land, you're going to want to be like the people there. You're going to get distracted. But this land is a good land and it's got all of these things. But all of those varieties are actual varieties that need God's tending and protection. They need rain. They need us to partner with God. Those varieties don't just happen automatically. Those varieties are things that we're going to have to rely on God for. And the reason why that garden is going to exist in that way is because we're going to be in a land where we're going to be pressured and tempted to fall into the ways of the nations just like we were pressured and tempted in the Garden of Eden, just like we were pressured and tempted with that beautiful vine making us drunk. And now we're going to find ourselves entering the fullness of the best garden of all, this beautiful garden of the land of Israel, and those pressures are still coming. And we know they're coming because Numbers chapter 13 tells us a story of the spies who are going to walk into the land. When Moses sent those spies to explore Canaan, he said, here's what I want you to do. Go up through the Negev and into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. What kind of questions is Moses asking here? What are we in for, right? Do they have walls? Are they armed? Are they guarded walls? Like, what are we going to have to do? We know we're supposed to go in and take this land. So start scouting out and figure out what it is we need to do. So they go up and they explore the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. And when they reach the valley of Eshtol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. And two of them carried it on a pole between them along the pomegranates with figs. And that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land and they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. It's starting to sound like a garden, isn't it? It's pretty beautiful. And they're bringing this fruit back. And they said, we went to the land which you gave us and it does flow with milk and honey. There's good stuff happening here. Here's its fruit. So what's going to happen next? But the people who live there, they say, are very powerful. The cities are fortified and they're very large. This garden you're taking us to, God, this ultimate land you're taking to us, has a lot of people there. 
And we even saw descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites, the enemies of God, live in the Negev. And the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And Caleb silenced the people before Moses. And he said, let's go up and take possession of land. We can do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Which brings us to our next edition. Really, God, really? Giants and walls. Do we really have to go into a land where we're going to have to fight battles? Is this the garden you're taking us to? Do we really have to go into a land where our neighbors are going to sacrifice their babies to the fire? Do we really have to go to a land where those people are going to push and pressure and tempt us constantly to want to be like them, to want to be, have a king like they have, to want to behave like they have? This is what garden looks like in the Bible. Garden looks like tremendous blessings. Really, God, this is where you're going to put the seven species? Awesome. Really, God, it's true. Milk and honey. Really awesome, God. Wonderful. Giant grapes that we get to carry back on a pole with figs and pomegranates. And isn't it wonderful and awesome? And we're not going. Because there's great, there's giants and there's walls and there's fortifications and there's battles waiting for us there. And there's temptations and there's things that are tough. Do you see a picture of a snake there too? And so there's these things that continue to sit in all of these garden imagery. And we could spend so much more time talking about how Solomon in his peacetime of reign had everyone sitting under their own vine and fig tree. And that beautiful picture of shalom and peace in the garden. And yet we could also talk about how Solomon conscripted labor and had more slaves than any other king. We could talk about how Song of Songs is the ultimate picture as a husband and wife, two lovers are are reunited in this beautiful garden imagery and how things are finally set back to right. But we could talk about how that's being set into the context maybe of Solomon having a lot of wives, right? So there's some complexity as we go on. But let's stop at our next garden that comes really fresh into a lot of our minds, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now in this garden... That sits on the Mount of Olives, which means the Garden of Gethsemane is Gat Shemin, Gat Shemanim. It's the pressing place. Gat is pressing and Shemin is oil. It's the place where they would press olive oil. That as Jesus is ready and sitting there and waiting with his disciples, knowing that Rome is coming, wanting to arrest him, wanting to put him to death. That as Jesus is there in that garden praying, he can run. The Garden of Gethsemane sits right below the ridge of the Mount of Olives. And right on the other side, Jesus can just duck down into these wadis and head right towards Jericho, right into the desert and be gone forever. Plenty of people had done it before him. That's how David fled from Saul. That's how David had to flee from one of his sons. That's how all of the kings and people, when they're fleeing at different times, just run out to the desert. That's why Herod had his fortresses out there so they could go and hide. And Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane and the temptation and the the pain and the pressure of that pressing place. As he's sitting there, he can run. It's right there. And in that garden, he's praying. He's with his father praying and he prays and begs, if you're willing, take this cup from me and yet not my will, but yours be done. 
Do you hear and feel and sense that pressure there, that temptation there, the battle that's also there in that garden? Are you starting to see the biblical picture of garden? It's not quite so Hawaii. It's richer and better and more beautiful and deeper than all of that. But in that place, Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. So betrayal in this garden of Gethsemane. And ultimate arrest and taken by the Romans, this really huge picture of a snake, isn't it? And from that moment, then all of the disciples are sitting there saying, what is going on? I thought he was bringing shalom and peace and garden and harmony back to the land. I thought he was going to be in charge. Why didn't he call the angels down? Why is Rome winning? What is happening here? Why is this the garden? And Jesus is crucified, put up on that cross, and he dies. And they take his body down off the cross and they bring him to another garden. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So this garden here in our story is a place where there is death. Where things aren't as they should be. But then... Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed for the entrance. Why is Mary going to that garden tomb? Why is she going to that garden? She's going to mourn. She's going to mourn the thing that she thinks is lost forever. She's going to mourn the death of her rabbi. She's going to mourn the death of all of her hopes and all of her dreams that things were finally going to be set back to right. She's going to mourn all of that. But while she's there, Jesus shows up. He's not in the tomb. And Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Who was the first gardener? Go back to Genesis. Who first got his hands dirty? God. God first planted. God first picked up the dirt, formed it, and breathed into it new life. And here in this place where there's death, where there's not yet life, Jesus shows up and she confuses him for the gardener. Doesn't that just make sense? And just like the other gardens where there was some work to be done, where there was a battle to be fought, where there was a, a temptation to yet to come, where there were things that we're going to have to wrestle and struggle with. Jesus says then at the end of Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he comes to his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's work also in this garden. 
that after Jesus is resurrected, it's still not yet set to right, but there's still some beautiful garden imagery that's going to be pushing through our whole story. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. There's all this lovely stuff that's going to continue to come through. And in that, there's work to be done. There's a call. There's a charge. There's still something to do, just like in Genesis 2, that there was work in the garden. So gardens in the Bible, as we've looked through, have beauty and hope and purpose, and they are good. And there's work there, and there's freedom, and there's choice, and there's responsibility, and there's battles. And guess what? Yes, even the snake is in the garden. But so is the victory. Because Genesis 15, Genesis 3 verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, God says to the snake, and you will strike his heel. So way back in Genesis 3, yes, there was a snake there, but after that snake tempted and lied and and convinced Adam and Eve to do the wrong thing, to choose worship of themselves instead of worship of God. God still gave them a way to get that snake. And we get to start to see also through all of those garden pieces, all those imagery where you're going from Genesis to the land, into the garden of Gethsemane, into the garden tomb, and ultimately, yes, to the book of Revelation, we are starting to see that God has set up an amazing way for victory to come in the midst of the garden. Guess what, y'all? We were made for this. God made us specifically to be in places where he would form us for a purpose to do good work. So let's get our hands dirty. Would you like to? You were made for this. You were made to get your hands dirty. You were made for a purpose. You were made to build something. And here at Spark, guess what? We call ourselves a little church plant. And we are, we're a church startup, right? We've just started this thing up. And oftentimes in church world, that's just called a church plant. And we like to think about this little plant that we're trying to grow. And what do you have to do if you have a little plant that you're trying to grow? You have to make sure it has enough sunshine and you have to make sure it's got enough good soil. And you have to maybe move it around to different parts to see where it's happiest. And you have to make sure it's got all of those nutrients and you got to put water in it. And you, not, you have to tend it. You have to get your hands dirty. So when we think about Spark Church here, we're thinking about how to grow this thing. We're thinking about how to tend it. We're thinking that God, the fact that God planted a garden in Genesis doesn't mean that he planted it a long time ago. It means that he is still planting gardens and still bringing about goodness and still placing us in areas where we are going to have to fight, where there's going to have to be a battle, where there's going to be some hard work to do. But guess what? When we're in that, we're in that garden, when we're in that tension, we're in that battle, we will never feel more alive than that moment. That's the moment where you feel the most alive. When we were made for this, when we're in our purpose, when we are being created to do exactly this, and now we're doing it. 
And when I think about Spark and I think about all of us in this room and those who are participating in Spark from a distance and finding ways to serve and to give from thousands of miles away and all the things that God is doing here, I think, yes, God, please, I want these five values to grow in Palo Alto, Mountain View, Silicon Valley. I want love, reputation, reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection to be here in the valley. I want Jesus to be glorified here. So God, plant us. Get your hands dirty, God, and teach us how to do it too. Because we want this. Not for us, but because you made us for it. And we want to see you glorified. So here's what I got. Are you ready? We're getting our hands dirty. I bought a plant, a real plant. It's an olive tree. It's one of the seven species mentioned in in Deuteronomy 8. And the beautiful thing about this olive tree, about the olive tree in the Bible, is that the olive tree symbolizes light. And what's the name of our church? Spark. Yay, thank you very much. So we have a tree out there. We have an olive tree out there that is going to symbolize our church. And I've got a little pot for it, and I've got some soil. And we right now meet here at this beautiful synagogue called Etz Chaim, which means tree of life. So praise the Lord, we've got a little, nice little tree. And we have this lovely olive tree, and we're going to plant it. And we're going to put it in a pot because we're renting space here on Sunday afternoons. We don't live here yet. We don't know where God's going to permanently put the spark garden. We don't know where he's going to permanently plant us. And in the midst of our moves, in the midst of wherever he has us next, it might be two or three more spots or 12 more spots. God only knows where he has us. We might have to, the tree might grow. Please, please, God, let the tree grow. The tree will grow and we'll have to get a different pot. And just like spark might have to be repotted someplace else, so that tree. But guess what? That tree is going to come with us wherever we go. And it's going to be our picture of how we together as a community are planting this thing. Look around. We together are planting this thing. And whatever your role is, whether your primary role is to say, you know, I'm really called right now to a church that I have, that I'm serving in, that I'm in on Sunday mornings, but I want to come and help and at least be here and participate and pray with you guys and at least sit here and and bring energy and my own prayers and the presence of the Lord in me in this place. Praise God. That's how you are growing spark. And if it's you're from a distance and you're going to grow spark by, by giving sacrificially or by listening online and praying for us, praise God, that's how you're growing spark. But if you're here in this room and one of the things God's calling you to do is helping with hospitality in the back, like Miss Esther and Mr. Jimmy set up and our entire setup crew and, and sound and tech and interns and preaching and loving each other and praying for each other and prayer teams and and hanging out and calling the pastor for coffee so she feels purposeful all of those things right if that's your job praise god for you you are planting spark you're planting these values if you bring your children here you're planting spark You're planting these values. If you go hang out with Pastor Kevin at Sky High and you're doing the youth group stuff, you're planting spark. You are bringing life to this little plant. So right now we're going to walk outside and I've got potting soil and I'd like to have you all grab. Because really, can you you really teach a sermon about getting your hands dirty without getting your hands dirty? So we're all going to grab some dirt, okay? And we're going to each one of us Put some dirt, a handful of dirt into that pot. And as we do, let's pray. 
And let's just pray as a community for this little plant that God's growing here, this little spark, this little church. Let's pray for this little taste of the garden that God is bringing here to this community. Let's go. We're going to pray. You can leave your stuff. We're coming back. There you go. You can come here. Want to help me plant? I have dirt at my house. You have dirt at your house? Yeah. Inside, right? Mommy's a mess. No. <laughs> All right. Everyone here? Yay. You want to help us plant? Hi, Gabe. I saw it when I came to church. You saw this when you came to church? So here's the olive tree. Look at, I don't know if you've noticed with an olive tree before that as the wind blows, you can sort of see light flying through it. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Grab a nice bit of dirt yeah and then you can pray whatever prayer you want to pray jesus please grow this little plant all right your turn you want to plant can you help you can do it we can do it together here you go grab some dirt you can get your hands dirty the pastor said so okay put it in Yeah, there you go. High five. Malia, right here. High five. Dirt. Bam. Yeah. All right, next, grown-ups. Yay. Several of you can come at once. Jesus, we bless you. We give you all glory and honor and all fame. And God, we ask right now that you would do miraculous things and that you would grow a beautiful garden in the midst of Silicon Valley, known for love, known for bringing about your reputation in the world, known for reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection. And Jesus, we ask right now that you would be the one in charge of teaching us how to be the gardener, how to plant, and how to get our hands dirty. And wherever role we have, whatever part that we may play, Jesus, whether young or old, God, we all are so thankful for the fact that your gardens are so much more interesting than Hawaii. And we're thankful, Lord, for the ways in which you've made us exactly for this. Thank you for letting us get our hands dirty with the work of your creation for your glory and your kingdom alone. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Woohoo! Okay. All right. A couple last little bits. Um, if you really want a cherry on top, go home and read Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22 and see how the, the snake gets stuck in the sea and the new Jerusalem comes down and the trees of the life on the river of the river. It's all cool. It's all the garden. <laughs>